we're going to hear from God uh, from Isaiah chapter 42 now. So if you'd like to open up uh, Isaiah chapter 42, 1 to 4. Thanks, Carol. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 22. It's page 967. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man then he can rob his house he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters and so I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men but the blas- but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven anyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. 
The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As the youth group have been learning this weekend, it's not easy to be a Christian in our world. In a world full of people who do not respond to Jesus, do not believe that he is sent from God, in fact, hates God. In a world where many people think that believing in Jesus is just silly, a dumb option, a crutch for people. And in a world that keeps on saying, it really doesn't matter what you believe. It really doesn't matter what you say about Jesus. What really matters is just being good. And so you end up thinking, well, why is it worth it? Why should I keep going? We need to have confidence in Jesus to see that it's worth keeping on going, don't we? We need to have confidence that Jesus is worth following, that he's worth following and believing in when most people think that he's not. And we need to have comfort when we know we don't belong to this world. I want you to see tonight that those two things, confidence in Jesus and comfort in Jesus, are right here in this passage. And it all starts with a demon-possessed man in verse 22. They brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. It's pretty obvious when in the days of Jesus that Israel is in a sorry state. God had promised that when they're in the land, they would not have disease. They'd be healthy. And yet the people seem to be full of disease. Not only disease, but there are demons. Surely that says something about the people of Israel. But Jesus comes, and every time someone with disease comes to him, he heals them. Every time someone comes with a demon, he casts the demons out. And this one comes, who cannot see and cannot speak. And Jesus heals him, and then he can see, and he can speak. Well, the people see and speak. They are astonished and they say, could this be the son of David? The Pharisees see and they speak. But they accuse him, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. 
It's striking this, don't you think? These Pharisees are the arch enemies of Jesus. They hate him. They have begun plotting to kill him, verse 14. And yet, when people are saying that he cast out a demon, they agree. Do you see that in verse 24? This fellow drives out demons. They have no choice. They cannot deny it. They see it and speak it as well. We wonder sometimes, don't we, that the, maybe the stories about Jesus, his miracles, are exaggerated. Have you ever thought that? They're just designed by his followers to impress other people, that he was really just a teacher and the stories got out of hand. Have you ever thought that? Well, here, even his enemies couldn't deny what he did. Their only alternative was to say that they were evil, that they came from an evil source. And so they say, he drives out demons by the prince of demons, that is Satan. They say it to one another, they say it to the crowd. I don't think they've got the courage to say it to Jesus. But verse 25, he knows their thoughts anyway. And he tears their logic to shreds. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? President Abraham Lincoln said, A house divided cannot stand. He was talking about the civil war. But he got it from Jesus. Satan wouldn't be that stupid, Jesus is saying. Your logic makes no sense at all. And not just your logic about Satan. If you accuse me that my power comes from Satan, well, you've got one finger pointing at me and three fingers pointing back at you because your people drive out demons too. So who are they doing it by? Jesus tears their logic to shreds. He refutes their accusation and then he declares the truth, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Just as God promised that there'd be a servant, Isaiah 42, who would have the Spirit on him and release people from oppression, now you can see it's happened. If that's what I'm doing, you know that the kingdom of God has come. Or again, verse 29, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Do you like this image? Who's Jesus in that one? He's the burglar. And he's tied up the strong man who lives in the house. That's Satan. Tied him up. And now he can carry off his possessions. Jesus the burglar. See if you can remember that one. Jesus refutes their logic and he declares the truth. Now this ought to give you great confidence in Jesus, I reckon. We're intimidated by intellectuals, aren't we? By the people in the media who come up with their clever arguments to say why there's no God and why Jesus isn't real. They make out that we're the dumb ones for believing in Jesus. But you read Jesus' words and you think, who were the dumb ones? No one can defeat him in a debate. The Pharisees were not silly. But he exposes their logic. You'd listen to him and you'd go, I'm with him. He knows what he's talking about. 
And not just that he's got logic, that he's a wise teacher, he's someone who can tie up the strong man. Are you afraid of evil and what it might do to our world? Are you worried about the devil and what he's up to and how he might confront you? Jesus is a burglar who tied up the strong man and carried off his possessions. So you can resist the devil and he will flee you. You can have confidence in Jesus. Jesus refutes his accusers and then he condemns them. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These verses are confusing. They're puzzling, aren't they? They're scary. Is this me? But before you go any further, I want you to notice the wonderful words in verse 31. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. Just stick on those words for a moment. They're pretty good, aren't they? When Sandy Grant was here a few weeks ago, he told us about the Nazi war criminals who were on death row, who had slaughtered millions of people. And yet Jesus forgave them for every sin can be forgiven whatever it is you've done or thought or keep on doing it can be forgiven yet he does say here doesn't he that there is an unforgivable sin verse 32 is puzzling isn't it anyone who speaks against or speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven but anyone who speaks against the spirit will not be forgiven. I mean, what's going on here? Is the spirit more sensitive? Does the spirit hold a grudge more than the Son of Man does? No, Son of Man is what Jesus calls himself, isn't it? It's an elusive term, an incognito term, a not-quite-telling-you-who-I-really-am term. And so if you speak against the Son of Man, you don't really know who you're speaking against. That can be forgiven. But if you speak against the Spirit, who shows who Jesus really is, if you say the work of the Spirit is actually the work of Satan, that's what they said, wasn't it? Well, that's a sin that cannot be forgiven. Notice once it says in verse 32, anyone who speaks a word, who goes on speaking, it's a present continuous, an ing word, speaking do you see? And so if you go on speaking against the work of the Spirit that demonstrates who Jesus is, and you go on speaking that until your dying day, will you be forgiven? No, you will not, says Jesus. You cannot, says Jesus. For how could you be forgiven? The only way to be forgiven is through Jesus and his death on the cross. You reject him and you reject forgiveness. He says to the Pharisees here, if you continue to reject me like you have just done, then you will die in your sins. Nothing will be able to save you from your sins. Why are the Pharisees like this? Why do they see what Jesus does and speak evil? 
Why do they see such good that Jesus does and say that it's evil? Well, that's what he answers in verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers! How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouths, for from the overflow of the mouth, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why do the Pharisees see what Jesus does and say that it comes from Satan? They speak evil because they are evil. Their problem is not an intellectual one. It's not that they haven't got enough information. They have rejected God in their hearts and so therefore will not listen to what he says. What they need is a heart change, a heart transplant. And that's the same today, isn't it? Why is it that people who know about Jesus, who perhaps know as much as we've known about Jesus, refuse to listen to him, to come to him? If you're at a a school where they constantly talk about Jesus, but people will not listen. They think it's wrong, and they think it's bad, they think it's evil or just irrelevant. Why is that? Because, Because there's a heart problem on the inside. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we need to pray for our friends and family, don't we, that God would grant them a heart change. The other thing you need to notice here is that you need to have confidence in Jesus and what he says about what really matters. Yes, the Pharisees were evil at heart. That's why they couldn't accept Jesus. But if you met them, they would have seemed really good. I know if you've been at Sunday school, you've always thought of the Pharisees as wearing black coats. They wore black hats and they tied up women and tied them to railway lines so that they'd get run over. You know those old movies? But they were not like that. They were good, respectable people. They were Rotarians. They gave back to their community. You'd be very happy for your daughter to marry one of them. They were good people. But Jesus says they will not be forgiven because of what they say about Jesus. Everyone today says that what religion you are doesn't matter. Isn't that right? That what you say about Jesus doesn't matter. It's how you live. It's being good. Or it doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe whatever you like as long as you're sincere. The Pharisees were sincere. Sincere in their rejection of Jesus. And so Jesus says they will not be forgiven. We need to have confidence in Jesus here, that he's right about God. And when we think of our friends and family who will not accept Jesus, we need to be realistic and believe Jesus, that what he says is true. Without him, they will not be forgiven. Jesus refutes his accusers. Jesus condemns his accusers. But as if all this is not bad enough, the Pharisees dig themselves deeper. They make the most ridiculous request in verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. 
Imagine a child who every day of their life has had dinner served to them at 6pm put in front of them by their mother. Every day. And every day it's the same, completely dependable, day after day of dinner before them at 6pm. And this night it happens again. Their mother puts dinner in front of them at 6pm and the child says, Mum... What I really want from you is dinner. Do you see? What a ridiculous request from the child. It's been happening every day. It's happened just then in front of them and they ask for it to happen. Can you see what's happening here? Jesus has done so many signs. Matthew's just recorded some of them. The Pharisees have seen heaps of them and he's just done one just now. And they say, we want to see a sign. Can you imagine how annoying that would be? Well, Jesus is pretty annoyed, I reckon, and rightly so. Have a look at verse 39. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. None will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah, who went down, do you remember, three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish? So the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, he'll be dead. And that'll be a sign to you somehow. And Jesus says, at the judgment, the men of Nineveh, who Jonah went and preached to, will stand up, thousands of them from that city, and they will point at this generation and they will say, we knew nothing about God. We were as wicked as wicked. And when one man turned up and did no miraculous signs whatsoever, we repented. And you got Jesus, the Son of God, turn up, did a heap of signs, and you asked him for another one and did not repent. Then the Queen of the, of the South will stand up and say, I heard about Solomon. I travelled thousands of miles because I wanted to hear his wisdom. You had someone greater than Solomon and you did nothing. And that generation will cower in the corner, I imagine. It would have been better for them if they'd never had Jesus come at all. I think that's the point of the very strange story in verse 43 to 45. This generation, what are they like? They're like a man who had a spirit, an evil spirit, cast out of him. And then through a series of events, the spirit comes back because nothing had changed for that person. That's what's happened to this generation. Just in this very passage, a demon's cast out, but no response from the generation And so it's worse for them at the end. They are more capable, culpable than they were before. Now, frankly, that generation, Jesus' generation, had it better than us. Let's call a spade a spade. They got to see Jesus, didn't they? They saw the signs with their own eyes and spoke evil of it. We don't get to do that. The people you know who reject Jesus have never seen him or seen any of his signs. I take it their judgment will not be quite as bad as that generation. But they have heard and they have ready access to the reports. And so the judgment may not be as bad 
but it will be bad enough. And this passage says to us, do you care about that? Do you long for them to repent? Do you long for them to receive mercy like you have? It was tough for Jesus to be in the world. Do you see that? People rejected him. But you can have confidence in Jesus. Confidence in his ability to speak and confidence because he is the judge. You can see here that you can have confidence in Jesus, can't you? But it's really rather bleak until this point. Pretty negative, you'd have to say. Well, you'd be glad to hear that the last bit is good news. Have a look at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Just this verse on its own is good news because through the centuries, many Christians, including, I learnt this week, Martin Luther, the great reformer, have been convinced that Mary throughout her entire life was a perpetual virgin. Not just before Jesus was born, the virgin mother, but throughout her entire married life, they abstained because somehow sex is evil or dirty. Well, this verse creates a problem for that point of view, doesn't it? His mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. It shows that that is a wrong view of Mary and a wrong view of sex. And I think that's good news. You got that? But there's far better news in this passage. Let's move on. Someone told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here is unspeakable comfort. Jesus stretched out his hand. That's what it says literally. He stretched out his hand and said, Here are my mother and brother and sister. Some people think that what matters when it comes to Jesus is having the right pedigree. You've got to have generations in the church. It'd be really good to have a bishop who was an uncle. It'd be really good if your father was a minister or something. That'd give you a sort of a step up. Well, what was it like with Jesus' family? Did that give you a step up? Did they respond to Jesus? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Growing up with him and all. But they were part of this evil generation. They lived in Nazareth. And you remember no one in Nazareth responded to him. And here they've come not to listen to Jesus, but to speak to him. To give him a good talking to and tell him to go home and be a good boy or something. No, I don't think they're listening to Jesus. Their pedigree makes no difference. What does count? It tells you in verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that's what counts. 
The will of my Father in heaven sounds like you've got to do the Ten Commandments and get ten out of ten. The will of my Father in heaven. But in the context, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. What is the will of my Father in heaven? Well, at the end of chapter 11, the Father wants the Son to reveal the Father. He wants you to come to the Son. Come to me, who are all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's to receive Jesus and know that he's greater than Solomon. It's to do the opposite of what the Pharisees are doing. It's to accept Jesus. And those who accept Jesus, Jesus says, they are my mother and brothers and sisters. He became like one of us. He gave us the right to be called children of God. Can you see how precious this is? You and I, we live in a world where people are against Jesus and against Christians. Do we belong? Yeah, if you're part of a good family, you know you belong. You don't have to show your birth certificate when you turn up at the door. They welcome you. You belong there. You're secure in that family. There's warmth in that family. Some of us have had families like that. Some of us have not had families like that, but we know it's supposed to be like that, and we'd love to have that. Well, this is a family. And not just a good family, a good family. This is the family, the royal family, the divine family, where the Father is the heavenly Father and the one true Son is Jesus and we get adopted next to him. How good is that? On Friday, I took my son uh, Pokemon going. There's a gym down at the graveyard down here, down near Bell's Line of Road, for those who'd like to know. While he's Pokemon going, I'm enjoying the view and looking at the tombstone. Pokemon Go is pretty weird. Looking at tombstones pretty weird, isn't it? The thing that struck me this time about the tombstones, and I hadn't been to that graveyard before, was this. Almost all of them told you about the family relationships of the person. Loved husband of, loved wife of, grandfather of so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. That's good, isn't it? We don't want to hear about their profession or how much money they have or where they lived. That would be a stupid thing to put on your tombstone because what matters in life is relationships. But the best family to be a part of is not your earthly family, which comes to an end. Most of those tombstones, every person mentioned is now dead. But there is a heavenly family, a divine family that we are welcomed into, valued members, even though we don't belong in the world. Have confidence in Jesus and have comfort in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can have confidence in Jesus, that he acts by the Spirit of God and not by Satan, that he ran rings around his opponents whenever they attacked him. And Father, we pray that we would have confidence in him when he says that you must believe and speak rightly about Jesus in order to be forgiven. Father, help us to be confident about that. And Father, we thank you for this wonderfully good news 
this great comfort of being in Jesus' own 